Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. Big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters May 17th. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Previously on Ridiculous History. No, no, no. I, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, Casey, I was going to ask you to put in a clip from, from the show that sounded cliffhangery. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Uh, par- pardon that terrible lost impression, but I love that show. Well, I mean, I, you know, it, it absolutely is an appropriate reference because Lost had polar bears. North Pole had polar bears. The explorers from ancient Greece saw the polar bears and thought they were magical celestial arctros. I think that was an absolutely appropriate uh, lead in, Ben, to our part two of the Arctic, the North Pole, the magical land at the top of the world where all of of the world's dreams go to meander and mingle in that gorgeous light show we call the Aurora Borealis. That's what that is, Ben. Dreams. Dreams. Dreams in the sky. And you're Noel, and that's our super producer, Casey Pegram. Well, through the magic of podcast editing, we are we are back here again, my friend, and we owe our fellow listeners uh, more to the story of Mercator. That's what we promised we're, we're going to deliver. Um, we'd like to thank all the rabid Mercatorites who wrote to us uh, with various cartography-related threats. If we did not give this inventor and cartographer his due... Uh, some of the things we mentioned um, were, you know, the formations that he used to determine the pole. But he also styled on the map a little bit based on the stories he heard from explorers who had actually been. Uh, believe it or not, the map used to have, what was it, uh, a whirlpool? Yes, it's true. Um, he draws the Arctic uh, separated into four quadrants that are separated by channels of flowing water. Um, which meet up in in the middle in this giant kind of like mythological whirlpool. Uh, he got the idea from a couple of explorers from the 16th century, Martin Frobisher and James Davis, uh, who had made it as far as northern Canada. Um, didn't quite make it all the way, but they both talked about there being really gnarly currents, and they uh, were able to observe these currents by the way that these massive icebergs were just being, you know, basically like pulled by the currents uh, as though they were, you know, weighed nothing and they were massive. Uh, and he 
went on to describe it as such. He said, without cease, it is carried northward, there being absorbed into the bowels of the earth. Uh, and that's how Mercator described it um, from his accounts of, of these other 16th century explorers accounts. So he was kind of using like third hand information. They hadn't ever really even seen this thing. So he was doing the best with what he can. Once again, styling, as you would say, Ben, and there's even a region on this map that Mercator uh, labeled as having been home to a, a, an, a I guess, people, um, a, a, an indigenous people of uh, made up of pygmies, um, who he described as being uh, four feet in length. And this is likely also a reference to that kind of magically thinking, uh, you know, travel log that we, we talked about in the first episode, the Inventio Fortunata. Um, and that describes some small of stature individuals living in the polar regions. Um, and it could have been, we know about pygmies that lived in Lapland. Uh, so it could have been that he misunderstood um, something was lost in translation. And that was actually what the anonymous author of that piece was referring to, but it's hard to know. But then there's another chunk next to it that he described as being the best and most salubrious of all the chunks, uh, whatever that means. Salubrious. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that mean like, doesn't that mean drunk? What does salubrious mean? No, salubrious, I, I don't think it means drunk. Salubrious, I always thought meant uh, like a good place. Yeah, it just, like, you're right. It just means good, healthy, uh, and, uh, and, and, and health-giving even. Not drunk. I don't know why. I, I guess I'm confusing it with salacious, which also doesn't mean drunk. I may be the one who is drunk, you guys. It is, after all, 445 on a Friday. So give me a break and don't judge me. Uh, I I like the idea of the of describing something as a compliment and saying it's the best and most salubrious of all chunks. I think I'm going to refer to a lot of stuff that way, probably inappropriately in the coming days. Um, but but you're right. This is portrayed as a mythical land uh, because Mercator was taking the stories and accounts. Uh, from just the people he could find to the people he could meet. And that's why the first known map of the Arctic, the Septemtrionalium Terrarum, which is its, you know, its official name, that's why it looks so weird. There's a great article on Atlas Obscura. It talks about this, and you can see that first map, or sorry, you can see the second draft of it that was released in 1606, and it's just like you described. There's a whirlpool in the very middle. Uh, there are these four channels with some tributaries. There's a big rock. Um, this is the thing, though. So Mercator who was, uh, by the way, he was, he was born in March of 1512. Uh, Mercator passed away in 1594 after a life well lived, but his ambition, right? His, his work to map and define the world didn't die with him. Other explorers kept learning more about the Arctic and over time, map makers started to revise their view of both the North and the South Pole. There were maps that were updated in 1636 that no longer had those four um, those four chunks, salubrious or no. And they also did away with the central whirlpool. Instead, for the first time, they showed what looked to be a, like a large mass of uninterrupted land kind of surrounded or peppered with smaller islands off the coast. And then also this map uh, pointed out possible routes that ships could take uh, that or ships had taken that would allow people passage around this area. And it's weird because like 1594 to 1636, that's not that much time. You know, when we consider the lack of uh, communication tools that were available to people in this era, it's amazing that they made so much progress so very quickly. But, you know, tale as old as time, the scientific progress did not do very much to dispel the the myths that people had. The What, what is sometimes called, I think, uh, I think an article in the week called it polar fever. Did you hear about that? 
polar fever. Yeah, I know. I did hear about that. And, and it all ties back to that fascination of uh, this, this crazy inaccessible place. Cause let's not forget until relatively recently in history. I mean, you just couldn't get there. Even, uh, even our, our guy Mercator had to kind of use his imagination and depend on folks who had been much closer than he ever was able to get. But yeah, the idea of polar fever really took hold into the 19th century, um, we had governments offering prizes for explorers who made it as far north as possible. And that's not a, a change from really what we saw with monarchies um, trying to use it to chart routes to the different oceans for trade. Uh, but also it was probably a little bit of a flex as to like, you know, who, who's going to get to put their flag down in this weird, inhospitable, yet potentially magical part of the globe. Um, so we also started to see it becoming a national uh, point of pride for explorers to get to the top of the world and saying, hey, we did it. We did it first. And that is when polar fever truly kicked into high gear. Um, there was this obsession with people watching and seeing who would be the first to get there, to get close to the North Pole by ship or foot or hot air balloon or, you know, a sled or something. Also. Michael Bravo notes uh, that part of this was sort of uh, a religious piece. This idea that the North Pole was somehow connected with uh, what was referred to as its, as its celestial sister of heaven. Uh, from the very start, we talked about the idea of it being sort of a connection or a gateway between worlds. And in the 19th and, and 20th century, 18th and 19th centuries, rather, it just became more, uh, a little bit more kind of an evangelical version of that idea, as opposed to a mythological or, or a pagan uh, version of that idea. Um, so you really started to see that angle taking hold. Boston University's first president, William Warren, um, who was a professor himself of comparative religion, started to collect all of this anthropological field data and research and uh, linguistics and archaeological finds um, and adding in his own research, which he had done into religious thinking in Iran and China and Japan and other uh, ancient civilizations. And he concluded that there was um, what he referred to as an Andaluvian continent in the north with an unusually tall mountain uh, centered at the North Pole. Um, and he decided that this was where paradise was, heaven on earth, the very cradle of human civilization, uh, you know, more so than the idea of the cradle of civilization being in, uh, in the Middle East. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. So antediluvian is just a fancy way of saying like the time before the biblical flood. Often confused, by the way, with prelapsarian, which is the time before uh, the humanities fall from grace uh, in the Garden of Eden in that religious system, and I, I think it's I think it's maybe a little over generous to describe his, his opinion as a conclusion. You know, his his research, if we will call it that, clearly he was a learned person. But as I've established in previous episodes, we have to remember that at the time, religion and science were seen as two pieces of a larger thing. They were not in conflict the way that they so often seem in these our modern days. So in Paradise Found, Warren starts uh, spinning this, this narrative. He says, you know, first, this continent, which existed before the biblical flood, got flooded, and then it was covered by an ice sheet due to a shift in Earth's polar axis and then things getting really cold. Uh, the refugees from these disasters, he says, the survivors fled south and they established the basis of all civilization today. This is also, I have to note, it's very wrapped up in um, uh, a pro-Aryan kind of ideal, which was unfortunately common at the time. Paradise Found was written in 1885. This is this is something you see in other other like fringe research now, the idea of this pre-existing civilization, this hyperborean or Thule type of thing, um, which I'm sure is familiar to people. Nowadays, of course, uh, people would rightly criticize Warren because he was very much defending creationism against the the newer kid on the block at the time, evolutionary theory. Yeah, that's true. And um, these notions today would probably be looked down upon a bit because of that very reason. Uh, but especially uh, because of some of the racial theory that he's used to explain some of these historical migrations. Um, it was something that was controversial even at the time and now definitely has not aged well. Uh, Michael Bravo refers to how the variations of the idea of the North Pole being paradise on Earth actually found its way into a lot of other, um, let's call them ethno-nationalist views in other countries, including uh, the strands of Hinduism, they considered that uh, Mount Meru existed at the North Pole and had a huge part in some of the uh, the mythological kind of themes in in their views. Um, and also, you had uh, surprise, surprise, they're always there. The Nazis, uh, uh, whenever there's some weird kind of like Nordic myths to be unpacked or to be used to support some kind of terrible ideology. The Nazis are always there. Uh, Adolf Hitler had a very close relationship with a man named Rudolf Hess, um, who used the North Pole um, as part of a kind of an Aryan mystic um, set of beliefs. And that was all wrapped up in their Thule. Uh, I don't know, I think it's Thule Gesellschaft movement, which is a private society um, that included uh, lots of the sort of precursors for Nazi thinking and how that evolved. Yeah, I would say those those jokers were less precursors and more like, I don't know. So the, the Nazi party was trying to, elements of the Nazi party were trying to create an alternative religion that they could control based on um, some bastardized ideas they had pulled from a number of sources. It's where you also hear things like Vril Energy, V-R-I-L, uh, the idea that there might be some secret uh, superhuman race living under the surface of the earth. Uh, they, they were just like, have you ever been in a writer's room or a brainstorming session where things are just 
going crazy. Like this, these theories make me, um, are one of the things that convinced me a lot of those guys were on drugs at the time. I don't know how else it would sound uh, like something you could say reasonably, but one of their big things in, in the Nazi party and national socialism was that they wanted to replace where geography was traditionally oriented and traditional geography especially for like origin story of humanity was even at this time traced to uh, the middle east right and that is you know that is the cradle of powerful religions like judaism christianity and so on so they being you know anti-semites wanted to remove uh, Judaism in Israel as much uh, as much as possible from the narrative of humanity, and then say, "Hey, instead, let's look at the uh, let's look at where the real uh, story of humanity starts, which is for some reason at one of the most inhospitable places on the planet." So the logic uh, it's charitable to call it a stretch, but that's not even the most ridiculous myth because again, people were. People were desperate to learn more about this place because we are creatures built to explore, right? We are curious, but it was tremendously difficult and tremendously friggin' dangerous to get out there. So people just kind of had to believe what they heard from people who said they went there. One ridiculous myth was that uh, <clears throat> there's a guy named John B. Sheldon in 1869. We're jumping around in time here a little bit, but... Uh, in 1869, he was responsible for uh, an illustration called The Discovery of the North Pole and the Polar Gulf Surrounding It. His version of the North Pole has an iron cone one mile high, and it is surrounded by a perfectly circular ring of ice. And people believed it. It looks like a witch hat. Like in the middle of the ocean, essentially, like the brim is the circle of water and the ice is like taking is like uh, bordering it all. And then in the center is this giant kind of witch hat cone that's pure black. Uh, it's it's a real hoot. And there's a really great graphic um, that we found in the research uh, that has this image of it. And it says discovery of the North Pole and the polar gulf surrounding it. John B. Sheldon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, there's. There, there's so many examples of this too. I, it looks ex- oh, I'm just saying this so I can have an excuse to finally use this word. You're right on, spot on with the witch hat. I would say it also looks like a henin, which is the name for the pointy hats that princesses wear in fairy tales. That's it. I've been waiting like all all year to say that. A henin, you say? So that's the thing that you buy like a Renaissance fair that has like a. You know, sort of like some, what do you call that stuff? The gold, like, crinoline or whatever around Mm -hmm. it, and maybe some kind of ribbon hanging down. Interesting. Okay, I've learned a new word today. Earth is a princess, and that's its hat. Yeah, and that story that I was talking about um, from the Millville Daily Republican, published on October 25th, had some pretty fantastic details uh, about this hoax. Uh, but again, they're reporting it as fact. And it, it refers to the discovery of, of this witch hat situation as such. A large arc riding at anchor, her crew starving, and nothing but a drowned horse left for them to eat. The pole is a topaz, a diamond. I don't know why I'm getting southern now. The water around the pole never freezes. Yeah, this is this is a fantastic specific example of both uh, sensationalism in, uh, in the news and uh, an example of how easily people can make these preposterous claims. The alleged discoverer that we mentioned, John B. Sheldon of Millville, New Jersey, uh, says, or is purported to say, uh, under that picture that, that you described there, Noel, I made this discovery on the night of the 25th of October, 1869. The pole is 10 degrees high, 10 degrees wide, and round. The outer wall is ice. The center of the gulf is 90 degrees north, entered according to an act of Congress. In the year 1870. So you can see like a lot of it's a tendency for a lot of this kind of reporting to try to sound authoritative by putting in numbers, right? And putting in claims with, uh, you know, congressional approval and stuff like that. 
the Millville Daily Republican that we're talking about, you know, I, they kind of ran this as a um, a slow news day piece, I think, because you can tell the journalist doesn't necessarily believe this. Uh, they do say that, according to historians, the North Pole was actually discovered on April 8th, 1909 by Admiral Robert E. Perry. But they're giving space to uh, this wacky story of the Millville Explorer who found Earth's hat. I don't know why I'm so delighted by that. The idea that Earth has a, <laughs> has a hat. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's lovely. It's a lovely notion. Earth deserves a hat, a henen, because <laughs> Earth is a pretty, pretty princess, and we need to take care of her and crown her in hats and shower her with gifts and, and fine linens and, and, and mattresses. Uh, upon mattresses and go go squeezes. <laughs> so, uh, but I've got a question for you, Noel. You got it, man. I hopefully have an answer. So we mentioned, I mentioned that the the Millville Daily Republican says that one Admiral Robert E. Perry discovered the North Pole, but who did discover the North Pole? How sure are we there? Yeah, on September 7th of 1909, the New York Times published an article, a front page headline claiming that Peary discovers the North Pole after eight trials in 23 years. Um, and it truly was, as we've talked about over the course of two episodes, this untouchable kind of, you know, mythical place. And uh, we talked about, too, when polar fever kicked in. Uh, polar fever seems like sort of like a jumbo shrimp, doesn't it? Just putting that out there like an oxymoron. <laughs> um, irrelevant. Moving on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. These uh, prizes were in place, and lots of different explorers from all over the world had sought them. And so this was a big deal. People were freaking out, like, okay, it's finally been done. Uh, no more brass hat to strive for. Um, was it meant to be brass? Iron, I guess, is what they said it was. Uh, 
so this uh, gentleman in question, the Peary in question, was Robert E. Peary, um, and he had apparently sent word that he had, in fact, reached the North Pole in April of 1909, a little more than 100 years ago. And the report was an absolute stunner. Uh, but there was another report, wasn't there, Ben? It's sort of like when two different networks report different returns from the poles can cause a real hubbub. Yeah, and they were both of these reports were coming from the Big Apple. So you mentioned the New York Times report. Turns out that a week before that New York Times story runs in September, the New York Herald printed a headline of its own. I don't know why I sound so arch there. But they said the North Pole is discovered by Dr. Frederick A. Cook. Cook was also an explorer, and it appeared that he had um, people thought he had he had died. People thought Cook was dead. Uh, he was gone for more than a year. He came back and he said that he had reached the North Pole in April 1908, which would put him a full year before Admiral Perry. And the people reading these papers had some, you know, they had some pretty valid questions. First off, the North Pole could only really be discovered once, right? So we needed to figure out who got the prize for the history books. And Perry was always, for, for a long, long time, Perry was thought to be the legit discoverer of the pole. But the National Geographic Society, who sponsored a ton of his expeditions, re-examined his records, and they said that Perry's evidence didn't seem to prove his claim. And furthermore, they said that maybe he knew he had fallen short. Sort of like that, that story we did earlier. The boat the, guy. Yeah, exactly. Boat guy. I like how we both call him boat guy. <laughs> yeah, that makes it totally clear what we're talking about. So after Cook got back to the U.S. in 1911, Congress... Um, really tried to, you know, launch a serious investigation of this in 1914 and 1915. Um, they wanted to get to the bottom of who discovered the North Pole because this was such a point of national pride um, and also a national prize. You know, there was uh, cash at stake there. Um, but eventually, you know, something uh, sort of overshadowed it uh, by quite a lot in the form of World War One. They had bigger fish to fry. Uh, and so they kind of moved on. And supposedly both Perry and Cook left notes at the North Pole, uh, you know, and now like sort of like Perry was here, Cook, you know, was here, um, and those were never found. And uh, so, honestly, both of those are in some ways kind of called into question. Uh, and we we have definitive, obviously, proof a little later in history in 1968 with the first undisputed, entirely legit, confirmable overland voyage to the North Pole. Um, in 1968, uh, a Minnesota man named Ralph Plasted um, took a snowmobile to the North Pole. Um, and uh, he, he wasn't the first exactly. There were other explorers that went before, not by land, though, by air and by sea. Um, and also, many of them were able to confirm some of Cook's descriptions in his notes of the polar ice uh, and some of the uh, islands and the drift mm -hmm. of the, the way that the, uh, the glaciers drifted. So it does kind of make you wonder, how did Cook get it right if he never actually got to the North Pole in 1908? Are people, I'm sorry, Ben, maybe I missed this in, in the research. Are people saying that he was lying or it was just a difference of who got there first? So they're saying that Peary may have at the very least embellished his claims, if not outright lied or been mistaken. Uh, but the, the issue with Cook is there's not conclusive proof that he made it, but there's pretty strong circumstantial evidence because other people were able to go back later. And a lot of what he said in his descriptions added up. So there's there's kind of a, a, a possible a conspiracy afoot, dare I say. And now, again, you know, if you have the if you have the pony bones and the simoleons for it, I just want to reiterate, you can probably get passage on the 50 let po buddy. Um, I just like saying the name. It sounds like I'm the only one of the three of us who is 100 percent on board with going to the North Pole. Uh, but, you know, think of it maybe like a cool cruise. How can I how can I pitch you on this, guys? How can I get you to? Yes. 
you know, we won't be the first people at the poll, but we'll be three new members of a very rare demographic, a.k.a. people who made it there at all. Come on, think of the Instagram. I'll do it for the gram, Ben, and I'll do it for you, and I'll do it for the show, as long as super producer Casey Pegram comes on board with us and protects us from polar bears. I'm into it, and I'll be on uh, polar bear duty. No problem. Okay. <laughs> I can get down with it then. Let's make it happen. Guys, uh, this has been an epic two-parter, and I feel as though as I, I know a little bit more about my place in the universe. Um, thanks to the work of, of those what came before us and, and risked life and limb and, and, uh, and, uh, and frostbite in order to discover uh, a place that probably people shouldn't really be hanging out in. But, it, it, you know, it's for, for, for God and country, for science, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, for all the good stuff, right? All the good, the good stuff about the human species. Uh, it also reminds me of the terror. Have you guys heard of that TV show? The the terror came out. Uh, it has it has a story about polar explorers, the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror. No, I haven't, but I like the name. Well, check it out if you get a chance. Thanks as always to our super producer Casey Pegram. Thanks to Alex. Oh, whoa! No, hey. Hey. Guys, there's another call coming in. No, 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 no Zoom bombing. It's time, gentlemen. <laughs> oh, it was only a matter of time before you found us and Zoom bombed us. So here yeah, we are. I got to tell you, you gentlemen, it, it's so hard to type in all those URLs, guys. <laughs> I have I have bombed so many Zoom meetings. <laughs> Looking for Stuff us? Stuff you should know hates me. <laughs> oh, Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister, you're up to your old tricks again, I see. Uh, is that a spoon? Are you... Are you proffering a spoon at us? I'll be I'll be disemboweling <laughs> you with this momentarily through the internet. Well, I I I love this idea of you collecting other arch nemeses during the time leading up to you finally finding our URL. How'd you find us, by the way? Just it was just sheerly just random chance. I, I started I started just, you know, typing in URLs for Zoom meetings and uh, after a while I had a random number generator, made a lot of friends. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's almost like I'm starting up Omegle, but for Zoom. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it turns out uh, that uh, a few people don't appreciate that. I don't get it myself. But anyway, now I'm here to wreak havoc upon your podcast once again. You know, I've got to say, uh, Jonathan Strickland, aka the Quister, um, I I am uh, I am experiencing so many emotions right now. Uh, how are you doing? Uh, you know, before we get down to the business of being nemeses, uh, it's been a while. You want to catch us up real quick? Well, Ben, thanks for asking. Uh, I'm doing well, keeping fit, uh, eating, right? I occasionally take my dog for nice long walks. Uh, I do not see other people that much, so that's, that's new. You know, being a, an extrovert who gets his energy by interacting with other people it um well the well's running a little dry ben i don't mind telling you it's uh, so this is a pleasure but uh, but uh, but i shall i shall see you ground beneath the heel of my boot but how are you doing are you good you good um yeah i mean we've been we've been keeping on uh we've actually been doing a you know, I, I think the three of us and uh, and our fellow listeners have been having uh, as as good a time as can be. As always, we're astonished uh, to learn new things and to learn what we didn't know about stuff we thought we knew. I don't know. Would you say that's pretty accurate, Noel? Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, I have mixed emotions here, too. On the one hand, curse you. Uh, on the other hand, it's kind of good to see you, buddy. Uh, I, 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 I'm not ashamed to say that I did miss you a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't like the idea of you being lonely, so let's keep this going. Uh, I believe we are uh, even. We're on an even playing field because you started with a new set of dastardly rules to combat our uh, our rock, paper, scissoring of, of these uh, scenarios. Um, and you're going to have to remind us a little bit about how this works. I think we're probably going to be a little rusty. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, now, people who are 
new to this, you may not realize, we have now officially entered the most cringeworthy segment in all of podcasting. And um, what I used to do was present a scenario to our two beloved hosts, and they would have to determine whether I had uh, found that as an actual historical record or I had made it upsies. But then they were using their rock, paper, scissoring, as Noel said, to determine which one was correct, and I I don't like that. So now I present to you three scenarios, two of which are true, one of which is false. It is your job to determine which is the false one, and as always, I will arrange them in order chronological. So we will go to the earliest instance, then the next, and then the most recent You determine which of the three is fake. I tell you if you're right or wrong. You get a few minutes to decide. You do not get to ask any questions. That's right. No questions. So we can talk amongst ourselves, but you will will stonewall us if we have any clarifications. Perhaps, though, if we need you to restate uh, one of the scenarios, you may at least least accommodate us thusly, yes? Yes, yes, yes. And and, I mean, sometimes I'll answer questions, too, because I'm incorrigible. Don't encourage me. (laughs) It's a joke. Oh, my God. Yes. So uh, are we prepared to hear the scenarios that I have gathered uh, and get, or fabricated. Yeah, give me one second because as as I think uh, some of our longtime listeners know, we did blow most of our budget on that giant grandfather clock. Uh, we don't have it with us now, but I have a handy stopwatch, uh, and I think we'll have three minutes after the after the uh, pronouncement the of the final scenarios. scenario. Okay. Yes, yes. Okay. After I finish the third, you shall have three minutes to decide which is the false one. Here are your three. Oh, by the way, I I, I fabricated these for your episode on pneumatic tubes, which was like (laughs) a whole pandemic ago. So, um, but we never used it. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna fall back to that one. Here we go. Queen Elizabeth I created a position within her kingdom that she considered quite important. The uncorker of ocean bottles because it was thought that spies were using messages in bottles to communicate secretly, though presumably inefficiently. The penalty for opening a bottle if you were not this very official person was death by beheading. In the late 19th century, this is scenario two, a group of Austrian sailors and a journalist named John Sands was stranded on St. Kilda, an island off the coast of Scotland, and they placed a message in a bottle, tied it to a lifeboat, and sent it out to sea to ask for rescue as the island's small food reserves were running too low to support the survivors, and the weather was too rough for the local boats. They were fortunately... Were, were, were the tiny ships tossed? Oh, in faith, it was it was incredible. Uh, if not for the courage of the fearless crew, well, actually, the boat was lost, so I guess screw them. They were rescued a couple of weeks later. Scenario three. The oldest verified message in a bottle is relatively young, having been dunked into the Indian Ocean in 1886 from a German ship named the Paula. An Australian woman named Tanya Illman found this message in a bottle while walking across some sand dunes in Australia. The purpose of the message wasn't to cry out for rescue or longing for love. It was to study ocean currents. Start that stopwatch. Three, two, one. Okay, um, I gotta say, Noel, I feel like on scenario three, I feel like I heard something about that. I'm, I'm tempted yeah. to say that's true. It seems legit. Uh, you gotta study those ocean currents. How else are you gonna know? Uh, I don't know. It just seems like a thing that the people would study. Uh, also, scenario one, um, you know, it, it seems a bit extreme. You know, I, the idea of a, an ocean or a bottle uncorker does seem like the kind of pedantic uh, job that would be created in a monarchy. But the idea of punishable by death, like for some poor schlub uncorking mm. one of those bottles, like how would they even know? How would they find out uh, if they just kept it to themselves? It seems an awful steep penalty. Yeah. Uh, I am leaning towards scenario one being uh, falsified uh, to some degree. Two seems legit as well. Yeah, two seems like it's a successful kind of message in a bottle um, 
that would work. The the point about scenario one I, also flagged for me. I clocked the idea. There are, as we all know, many, many cartoonishly specific jobs in especially the British monarchy, uh, food taster and so on. So I could I, I don't know, though. The professional uncorker seems a little bit too far along the uh, the spectrum of specificity, which is a thing I just made up. So I I think, yeah, I think it's one. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that one, Ben. 100. Uh, percent No rock paper scissors required. We, you know, there 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 would be a way we could still rock paper scissor if we're in disagreement. Yes. So uh, you know, you you, we, you can't have it all, Quizster. But no, I don't think we need to this time. Yes, but if you disagree on two that are both true, then I still win. That's fair. Yeah. You gotta hedge your bets a little bit. Mm. Uh, I I I think we're we're in full uh, locked in agreement here on scenario one. Ah, well, gentlemen. Congratulations! Yes. That is, in ah. fact, the false one. Now, now let me let me elaborate a bit here because this is a this is a truly unusual situation. When I first gathered my scenarios to present to you for the Tube's pneumatic episode, this was one of the true ones that I listed originally because. It is widely reported. If you do a search for uncorker of ocean bottles and Elizabeth I, you're going to find tons of references. Tons of them. Turns out, however, those all can be traced back not to an actual historical record, but to a novel written by French novelist Victor Hugo, author of such works as Les Miserables. So... It turns out that this legend, which has been widely reported as being true actually is due to a piece of fiction and no one else bothered to look, including almost me. <laughs> but, then I, but, but then I did it and I used it as the fake one. Mm -hmm. But it did mean I have to go, had to go and find another true one. So... Man, you almost quizstered yourself, dude. Yes, I don't even know that my own strength. Sometimes <laughs> I'm, sometimes I'm so devious I fool myself. You you scored uh, you scored what the British would call an own goal there, didn't you? Almost. An own goal, yes. That's well, fortunately, uh, however you want to look at it, uh, that episode we never got a chance to record because, um, you know, stuff happened. Yeah, a lot of it, mm -hmm. and now we're all at home. And I have to just keep telling you, listen, by the way, guys, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings and all's in consideration. Do you think you could maybe just send me the URL? It's this guessing thing is it takes a lot of time. I think I, I think we can agree on that. Uh, it's you know, it's it's nice to have you back. I'm not going to lie. Um, and this was fun. And, and also we're we're one up now on you, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, uh, something like that. I'm sure I, someone out there is keeping track. I think we're tied. Oh, OK. I think is that we're right? Tied. Yeah, because okay. yes, I, I believe the first one, this is the second of the new format. And I believe the first one you got Guys, completely um uh you 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 whiffed it oh come on you're not above that was, huh all right fine you <laughs> know what you know what i take back what i said it's anyone's game i shouldn't have pointed out that we're tied uh but for those of you keeping score at home vote your conscience by which i mean please root for us uh because when we went to this new format i believe uh team ridiculous history was still uh maybe a little behind i think you were only maybe two behind maybe just one it was close well, do do let us know out there in podcast land. You can do so on the usual social media channels where we are Ridiculous History on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all that good business. You can join our Facebook group at the Ridiculous Historians where you might even find, I think you've had that URL uh, since the beginning, Quister. So you might find a little uh, lurking Quister action there where you can uh, you can needle him a little bit on there and, and make him feel bad about himself. Um, but, you know, you could also be nice to him. I know this is a divisive segment, it being the most cringeworthy one in all of podcasting, but we like it, and uh, you know, if you don't like it, you know when to turn off the podcast and move on. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I do want to point out, uh, yes, we we enjoy this segment. You guys know we're all suckers for segments, and we're always making new ones that we propose will do forever. Uh, so far, however, uh, Jonathan, the Quizster segment is the one we have actually we've actually stuck to our guns on uh you can find Jonathan 
on uh, Ridiculous Historians, but you can also find him on other shows. If you want to learn anything and everything about all things tech-related, do check out one of the longest-running historic shows on our network entire as Jonathan Strickland's tech stuff. And uh, Jonathan, I think people can find you a couple other places on the internet too. You got a Twitter, yeah? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. That's at John Strickland. It's J-O-N for that. And uh, you can see as I post terrible puns, movie references, and occasionally I get my dander up about politics. It's so fun. I can't wait to get all the responses. What happened to your accent, buddy? Oh, sometimes the Jonathan comes out in the quiz and goes into the back seat. Got it. Got it. Well, huge reluctant thanks to you, Jonathan, uh, for, for coming back. And yeah, we'll definitely send you the, the proper URL and, and you can Zoom bomb us any old time, buddy. Uh, big thanks to super producer Casey Pegram, Alex Williams, who composed our theme, Christopher Hasiotis, here in spirit. Big, big thanks to our own North Pole, magnetic and physical, or perhaps metaphorical, uh, research associate Gabe Luzier. Big, big thanks to our peer podcaster, Eves Jeffcoat. Uh, thanks, as always, to you, Jonathan Strickland, the quister. And, uh, you know, no. Thanks to you. Thanks to you and Casey both for uh, going on this weird, wide-ranging journey uh, toward the North Pole. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org.